come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 48 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be Journey Through the Aughts number 21, where I have featured reviews of... I know I had said some different movies previously, but I realized the one that I had said is one that I'll have to wait till later in the month to check out. So what this one's going to end up being is The Babysitter Killer Queen and The Telltale Heart from 1960. And then I'm also going to have a very mini review of By Night's End, and I have mini reviews as well of Dawn of the Dead, the 2004 remake, Hostel, Juon the Grudge, which is a remake of the more TV movie of Juon the Curse, and then this is the one that they actually remade for the American audience. There's also The Devil's Rejects, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Hocus Pocus, and then a lot of these movies I'm actually trying to do for a some movie challenges and everything like that that I might have brought up, like the Hooptober as well as the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror movie challenge for October. But before I kind of get into any of those mini reviews, what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to my monthly review. For my monthly review for September, I watched 34 total films, 28 of them were in the horror genre, and 5 of them were 2020 releases. Those 28 films are Mill of the Stone Women, JD's Revenge, Bubba Hotep, The Shining, The New Mutants, The Little Shop of Horrors, Short Night of Glass Dolls, The Skeleton Key, Dog Soldiers, Resident Evil, 28 Days Later, Impedagore, Tormented, Malefique, A Tale of Two Sisters, Paranormal Activity 2, Old Boy, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Alone, Wrong Turn, Stop Me Before I Kill, House of a Thousand Corpses, Shortcut, we Are Still Here, The Telltale Heart, The Babysitter Killer Queen, Dawn of the Dead, and Hostel. And I should point out The Shining is the original one from 1980 and Dawn of the Dead is the remake from the 2000s. I also should point out The Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I saw is also the remake. And then Old Boy is the original one from South Korea. Now the oldest movies that I watched are Mill of the Stone Women, The Little Shop of Horrors, Tormented, Stop Me Before I Kill, and The Telltale Heart. Those are all from 1960 as part of my Journey Through the Aughts segment that I'm doing. And then the new horror movies that I watched, the 2020 ones, are The New Mutants, Impedagore, Alone, Shortcut, and The Babysitter Killer Queen. And then the highest rated film that I watched is The Shining at a 10 out of 10, and the lowest rated is Shortcut, which is a 5.5 out of 10. The average year of all the movies that I watch is 1999. The average rating is a 7.6. The percentage of movies that I watch for horror are 82.35%. 
And there's some of them, there's three of them that are not featured on this podcast. There's JD's Revenge, which is for the movie club challenge that is done monthly over on the podcast under the stairs. And then Short Night of Glass Dolls has just been sent over to Duncan for the Where to Begin with Giallo series. So you can hear both of those over on the you know podcast under the stairs feed and the T-Puts collective feed respectively. And then We Are Still Here is one that is going to be featured on SideQuest. Just haven't had a, got a chance to record that as of yet. So those are all the movies that I wanted to kind of recap that I watched during the month of September to get you kind of up to speed on everything that I've been watching. And October should be a lot busier month as I've already knocked out a few films that you will start to hear on this podcast here. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy. She keeps them always shunned in a pretty cabinet. Let them be cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. A building a remedy for Chris Job and Kennedy. And it's out of limitation, you can't decline. Caviar and cigarettes, well-versed in etiquette, extraordinarily nice. She's a killer, queen, got body gelatine. She never kept the same address In conversation She spoke just like a baroness Middle man trying to Down to get your mind Then again incidentally She that way came naturally from Paris Because she couldn't care less Fastidious and precise She's a killer Queen Gunpowder gelatine Dynamite with a laser beam Guaranteed to blow your mind
Welcome back, and for the first thing I want to talk about is actually not going to be a horror movie, but one that I did get to a chance to watch the screener for. As I was saying in the opening for this, I did get a little bit confused and thought By Night's End, that is the screener that I watched. I thought it was a horror film, but it is more of just a crime thriller. But I still wanted to at least talk about it here briefly since Jenna Willen from Dark Coast had you know reached out to me and everything like that. This is one that's pretty interesting once you kind of get past the opening bit of it i do think that the story is a little bit convoluted in how they get everything going but once they get into everything i think it really works well is that we did have a the main actress in it is michelle rose playing a character named heather i thought she did a really good job as well as the main villain of moody who was portrayed by michael aaron milligan i thought they played off each other very well and i just like how they kind of play with gender identities in this one where we have the character of Heather is a former sergeant in the military and is actually working while her husband is currently unemployed. Now they do play with some things where some emotion all type stuff that doesn't necessarily always work for me but I can understand what they're going for here. The movie though does have some excellent cinematography. They do some things with some framing as well as some very long shots that really kind of had me hooked. So this is a movie that at least wanted to throw on here just briefly to kind of go over. It is a fun, you know, dark crime thriller type film for sure. And I came in with a 6.5 out of 10 on that one. And if you want to see more of my in-depth thoughts on this one, I did do a review that is for the Dark Discussions Network website for that as it fit better than for my blog. So I would recommend going over there to check that out as well. And then for my first actual mini review here is going to be for Dawn of the Dead, the remake from 2004. This is directed by Zack Snyder. This comes from the original screenplay by George A. Romero, and James Gunn wrote the screenplay for this one. This stars Sarah Polly, Ving Rames, and Mackay Pfeiffer. This is an action horror film in a co-production from the United States, Canada, Japan, and France. This is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being... A nurse, a policeman, a young married couple, a salesman, and other survivors of a worldwide plague that have been producing aggressive flesh-eating zombies take refuge in a mega Midwestern shopping mall. Now this is a film that I'll admit, I got caught up in the hype learning that this was going to be made. The original was a staple of my childhood and still one of my favorite films of all time. I'm pretty sure I saw this movie in the theater when it came out, probably more than once. It was an immediate buy and, I've, and one that I've seen quite a few times over the years. The older I've gotten though, I've slowed down... And it has been, you know, a few years since I've seen it. I did give it a rewatch as part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s. Now, just to kind of fill everything in, this one has one of the best openings in, you know, horror movie history. But then I like how this one will take us where we have the survivors that were in the synopsis. And those people are like Anna is Sarah Polly. Now, she is a nurse. And then there is... Kenneth, who is Ving Rames, there's Michael, who is Jake Weber, Andre, who is Mackay Pfeiffer, there's Luda, his wife, who is Inna Korbinkana, and then they end up going to this mall where they end up running into the security guards that are kind of watching over it, and they're led by CJ, who is Michael Kelly, and they also have Terry, who is Kevin Zegers, Bart, who is Michael Berry. Things happen, and some more survivors end up coming there, and those ones are Norma, who is Jane Eastwood, Tucker, who is Boyd Banks, Glenn, who is R.D. Reed, Monica, who is Kim Poyer, Frank, who is Matt Frewer, and then there's Steve, who is Ty Burrell. Now, they hold up here as more and more zombies start to congregate, and they have to figure out what they're going to do in order to survive. Now, as I said, I've come down on a little bit 
you know, over the years and everything. And getting into podcasts really helped me to see what others thought of this as well. Now, this version does take out the social commentary that the original one had and makes this more of a popcorn film. Now, that's not meant to be a slight, though. This movie is fun to watch in my eyes. Even though it runs 101 minutes, it really just flies by. What I really like to go with that, though, is that they incorporate elements from the original while doing their own thing and not making it a shot-for-shot remake. And that's not to say we don't get some social commentary here still. I like that we have a strong woman character in our lead of Anna. She's a nurse, so it makes her important, and she's still, you know, trying to hold on to the humanity for their society they're now living in. On the flip side, there's Kenneth. Now, he's a black cop who only cares about himself, and he is quite similar to CJ, but being, you know, that he was already in the mall, they fall on opposite sides. I like that both are tough, but crack as they join the cause. Michael is a character that couldn't find a place until being here. Andre seems like a criminal, or at least that's what Kenneth thinks, but it does kind of feel like racist against his own people for that right there, as in, you know, they're both black. Then there's Steve. He's rich, he's a jerk, and does nothing to help. He is reaping all of the benefits, so we're getting to see, you know, classism at play here on a smaller scale. It is a good job of there, you know, having all these different characters of different walks of life in this mall for sure. Now, I do have an issue with the fast-moving zombies. I'm not the biggest fan there. I know some people are, and I get the appeal. They can run after you and kill you, making them even more dangerous, especially since it's only a blow to the head that will stop them. It is even more terrifying here to have the mass numbers that they do of that many dangerous creatures. The problem, though, is that they're decaying people. They shouldn't be able to run. It loses some of the realism in that fact for me. I still like the tension that comes from these ones, but I prefer the slow-moving, more traditional zombies myself. Now for the effects, I think that all the practical effects are good, especially the featurette on the DVD I found interesting showing what they do with the headshots and everything like that. And I even like that there's a bit of hair and scalp that move at times when somebody is shot in the head. The CGI though really doesn't hold up for me. It isn't as much as you'd expect from a normal Zack Snyder film, but it is still there. And plus there's this odd filter over everything that I've come to notice the older I've gotten as well. And I think there's some green screen in this as well, if I remember correctly. I thought that was fine. It doesn't really hurt it too bad. And I don't really notice it to be as you know prevalent in some of his later films. I thought the acting was good as you know Polly is solid as our lead. I used to have a crush on her, but there really isn't anything there. And she doesn't add a whole lot to her character. She just seems fine. Rames is a good as this brooding, imposing guy with an attitude for sure. I like Weber. Mackay Pfeiffer is fine. Burrell cracks me up in his role as his rich jerk. I also really like Kelly. Aside from that, Zegers, Barry, Booth, Banks, and Frewer are all fine in my opinion. And the last thing I just really wanted to go over would be the soundtrack. The normal selections for this movie I thought fit, and they helped, you know, accent the scenes. What I really wanted to talk about, though, were some of the other songs. There is this Johnny Cash song of When the Man Comes Around, Richard Cheese doing Down with the Sickness, and then Disturbs version over the credits. And there's some other ones sprinkled in there as well. I really like all of these, and it just makes me think of this movie for most of them when I hear them outside of this one. So even though I have cooled on this movie, I can see that this is still a really good take on what they're doing. It just is not like a classic in my eyes, but more of a popcorn take on that story. So I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then up next I have for you is Hostel from 2005. This is written and directed by Eli Roth. This stars Jay Hernandez, Derek Richardson, and Ethor... Gooden Johnson. This is a horror film that is from the United States and the Czech Republic. This is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being three backpackers head to a Slovak city that promises to meet their hedonistic expectations with no idea of the hell that awaits them. 
Now, this is a movie that I'm pretty sure I got my friends to come see with me in the theater. Now, I graduated from high school the year that this made its wide release. It's probably also sucked me into wanting to see more Eli Roth films going forward, and it has been a while since I saw the movie. So I was intrigued to see where I would land on it, you know, watching it more with a critical eye. Now, just to kind of fill you in just a little bit more on the backstories, we have Paxton, who is Jay Hernandez, and Josh, who is Derek Richardson. They're getting ready to start their lives after college, so they're having a last hurrah by backpacking across Europe, and they've met up and are traveling with Ali, who is Gunjutsun. Now, we're joining them in Amsterdam, where Josh recently has broken up with his girlfriend as well, so the guys are trying to get him laid, but they're a little bit kind of annoyed with how many Americans there are in Amsterdam, so they end up running into this guy, Alex, who is Ludomir Bukavi. And he offers them some weed while they're in his room. And while they're talking, he dissuades them from going to Barcelona since they're leaving Amsterdam. And he says they should go instead to Bratislava. Now, what seals the deal are the pictures of the girls that he has on his phone that he has hooked up with. Now, they end up getting there and everything seems to be just as this guy was saying, where there's these beautiful women. And the ones they run into are Natalia, who is Barbara Nenjilakava. And then Svetlana, who is Yana... Kander Bavkova. Now they all start hanging out and you know drinking, smoking, doing all the whole thing for it. But once Ali disappears, and then Josh does, we start to see that there might be something a little bit more dark and disturbing going on here. Now something I just kind of want to briefly go over here is that it's kind of interesting that writer director Eli Roth heard about a website that was offering a vacation where you could murder somebody. Now he wanted to do a documentary, but then soon realized that no one would talk to him and it would get quite dangerous if he started looking into something like that. I honestly think that there could be rich people out there hunting people and doing things that we're getting here. Maybe not on the grand scale of what we're getting here with elite hunting, but if you have enough money, you can pretty much do anything, and that is terrifying to me. I also found some interesting trivia here that the Slovakian government was not happy about how it was portraying its people or its country here. I will say that I don't think that they're all bad, but I do think, and I've actually read and heard some things, that some of these former Soviet bloc countries do have widespread corruption in them. Do I believe that a town like this could be, you know, having a group there with enough money, power, and influence that they're running something like this? Absolutely, I think it's possible. It really does make it easy for people to disappear as well, which is one of the scariest parts here, and it's also something that was always in the back of my mind when I went to Barcelona during my trip to Europe. I went there solo, actually. Now, if I do have a gripe with this movie, it's the characters that Eli Roth created. Reflecting back, it does make me think of me and my friends where I was kind of a douche and kind of bro-y. But it's kind of cringe now to watch it in 2020 with just how over the top they are about it. But there is something interesting here, though, is they end up meeting an American client much later in the movie. At least one of them do. And this American client is portrayed by Rick Hoffman. Now, he's jacked to be there, get ready to kill somebody. He keeps acquiring about the things that he believes that the guy he's talking to has done. With him talking, it really makes me feel like the guys that we saw earlier, you know, of Paxton and Josh, that this would what happen if they make a lot of money and keep living the type of hedonistic lifestyle, as the synopsis put it. He is now chasing a new high since he kind of says that the women that he's been kind of messing with don't really do it for him anymore so there's really is this social commentary that i never thought about about classism here with it's the rich that are hunting the poor and then the chasing of the forbidden fruit now i do think the acting though despite how the characters are written is fine it's kind of weird to me though i feel like paxton becomes our hero but he doesn't start out as our main character in my eyes i knew hernandez from friday night lights which came out around the same time as this he's good in this performance i would say and 
the turn of events that happened to him as the movie goes on really does shine for his performance. I personally think that Richardson is the best performance of all. He just has the most terrified and just scared when he is being attacked. Uh, Gunda Shun is, you know, funny. The two girls are highly attractive. We get to see both of them topless, which kind of goes back to the bro-y thing of Roth here. But I also think that, I mean, we also get to see a ton of other girls, but I also love that the true reveal of their characters, that the longer this movie goes on, they're no longer wearing makeup and start to look worse, which is kind of a cool thing. I also think that there is a character of a Dutch businessman. He is pretty creepy in this movie. I also have to give the shout outs to some cameos by Hoffman. We get Takashi Mike, Quentin Tarantino. I also read somewhere that he had a small role in this and even Eli Roth. Now, the last thing I really kind of want to go over here would be the effects. I was shocked to see Greg Nicotero listed in the credits along with Howard Berger, since they're both masters of the craft. I would say for the most part that the effects in this movie were good. They went practical from everything that I could see, which is what I'm always on board for. There was one scene with an eyeball that I don't think looks great, but I do think what happens after that was pretty on point. And I also like the amount of times that we're seeing people throw up in this movie, because I feel like that's realistic if you're going to be kind of in this situation like they are. But overall, I'm actually glad this movie held up for me. I was kind of nervous to see if it would or not, just from some of the things I've heard. And, you know, it has been so long since I saw this. But I'm coming in that with an 8 out of 10. And this is actually one that I would even recommend to non-horror fans. The only thing I would say is that if you can't handle things that are a little bit violent or graphic, I don't think this is that bad. But I've also jaded myself in watching some pretty horrific things. So just keep that in mind as well. I would say for less seasoned horror fans, that is. But for regular horror fans, I think you're going to kind of find this, you know, kind of be run of the mill for things we've probably already seen. And up next, I have Juan the Grudge from 2002. This is written and directed by Takashi Shimitsu. This stars Megumi Okina, Masaki Ito, and Masa Uhari. This is a horror film that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a mysterious and vengeful spirit, marks and pursues anybody who dares enter the house in which it resides. Now, I should point this out. This is the sequel, like, remake that they did as the original Juan the Curse was the one that I've already covered previously as a mini-review. And then this is the one that actually had a much bigger, bigger budget and was, you know, designed mostly for the theaters. And this is the one that I believe ended up getting, you know, remade for the American version. Now, I did see this after seeing the American remake. I did the same thing with The Ring and Ringu, and I will admit though, I didn't really care for this one the first time that I saw it, and I think a lot of that was the out-of-order timeline that it messed with me, and I just really couldn't piece everything together. Now this is something that I've gotten over as I started to understand the movies in the series, and then the movie starts off letting us know what a Juon is, which is a curse that when somebody dies violently, a curse is placed on the house that will follow anyone who enters. Now we get to see some grainy looking footage where we have Takio Saki who is Takashi Mitsuyama as he's not on his fingers and he's covered in blood and then we see that he probably killed his whole family. Now we end up knowing this just because of you know everything that ends up playing out after this point. And this movie is told in six different chapters with the first one following Rika Nishina who is Okina. Now, she is a volunteer at a social welfare center, and then she goes to a house to check on a Misachi, who is Chikako Isumara. Now, she doesn't talk a whole lot, and then Rika kind of gives her a sponge bag, gets everything cleaned up, gets her back into bed, and then cleans up the rest of the house. And then we pretty much get to see 
how this family as well as this lady here and then some police that investigate some of the things that end up happening after the fact and it all revolves around this family that involves Toshio who is Yuya Ozaki as well as Kayako who is Takako Fuchi and how this curse kind of spreads out to all these people that come in contact with it. Now, I kind of am doing this a little bit smaller than... I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to this movie. I just don't necessarily want to delve too much in, especially since it's going to be just a mini-review. Now, as I was saying, this is a bigger-budget remake of the original one that was Juan the Curse. This one is... That one was more of a TV movie, where this version doesn't necessarily give you why Takio kills his wife and child. We know he went into a rage and then wiped his whole family out, and I'm not sure if... The writer and director here assume that everyone would have saw the previous movie and that is the explanation but i just know that it is missing from this movie from what i gathered now we have some interesting parts of this are that we have a detective who is investigating the original crime there wasn't a whole lot to look into but whatever happened messed with him and he is retired from the force and i think this is interesting because the cops that are investigating something in the more present reach back out to him to find out what happened here and then we have you know rika discovering something that happened to Katsua and Kazumi who are the son as well as the wife of the older lady that she is helping and there's just a lot of like I said kind of moving parts as well but we also end up following like this detective by the name of Yuji his daughter Itsumi also kind of encounters this curse and just kind of interesting how the whole thing kind of different plays out with these different people as some of these people have some really creepy scares and I'll that you know still get me unnerved to this day now, I will say that the curse here is a little bit loose. It will follow some people that are involved, but not everybody. The rules don't seem to necessarily be too concrete, and they're really just kind of picking and choosing for certain set pieces. It is still terrifying, though, that someone could be touched and then haunted for just going into a house like we get here. I do think the series does play on this very well in some of the later films that came from it. I think the acting is pretty good across the board. We really don't necessarily have a true lead in this movie because everybody kind of gets a different part of the story where it follows them. But I think everybody on the all does really well. Where I do think that Ozeki, Fuji, and Matsuyama, they all do really well with the with Takio being the nice bookend of this movie. But I really have to give it to Kayako is quite creepy. And a lot of that are due to the effects. I do like how they kind of whited out their skin and gave them eyeliner to make it really kind of pop with everything like that. And then I also have to give credit to Fuji because she can move her body in such creepy ways when she's crawling. And then I think that most of the practical effects that we get here are good. I do think that Juwan the Curse is a little bit better with making her look a little bit more bloody a few different times where that was kind of creepy. There is some CGI that doesn't really hold up for me here, but I really do like the cinematography, though. They do really good at playing with the frame and having things that the characters don't necessarily see, but we do, and that is something that really makes me uncomfortable. Aside from that, I think the soundtrack fits for what is needed. What really is good here, though, is the sound design. The noise that Kayako makes is just unnerving for me. Now, I've heard that it's just a comb where they're running something along the teeth and then recorded it. The reason, though, this makes it to make that sound though for the character is is both sad and kind of wonderful how it plays out for sure and when i finally realized what that was it really kind of you know creeped me out even more like i was saying now as i said i wasn't very high on this movie but i've really come up now that i kind of understand it a little bit more and can piece the story together i still am a little bit confused on some things i think i've got it figured out but overall, this is just a really good movie, and I think this might be my favorite out of all of them. I do kind of feel like I need to kind of 
you know, revisit. And this is even included in the American versions as well. But I came in at this time with an 8.5 out of 10 on this movie. And then up next for it, I have The Devil's Rejects. This is written and directed by Rob Zombie, who also came up with the characters. This stars Sid Haig, Sherry Moon Zombie, and Bill Mosley. This is a horror film from a co-production of the United States and Germany. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being the murderous backwoods Firefly family take to the road to escape the vengeful Sheriff Whitell, who is not afraid of being as ruthless as his targets. Now this is a movie that I saw in theaters with a couple of friends at the end of high school. If you know my thoughts on House of a Thousand Corpses, I was leery to see this follow-up. I ended up loving this movie though immediately after seeing it. And I'm pretty sure I'd only seen it that one time until now, so there's been like a 15 year gap in between viewings. This would be the first time watching it with a critical eye as well. The reason for the rewatch is to watch all of the films for the Summer Challenge series for the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s. And so this one really kind of picks up right where the last one left off. But we're getting some crime scene footage as well as texts that are getting us up to speed. This is, like I said, directly after the events of the previous film. There is the Sheriff Wydell, who is William Forsythe, as he's hot on the trail of the Firefly family. And they're also being dubbed as the Devil's Rejects for their depravity and brutality. Now, we end up seeing a shootout at their house. And during this, the brother of Rufus, who in this film is Tyler Maine, ends up dying and Mother Firefly, who in this one is Leslie Easterbrook, she ends up being arrested. Otis and Baby, who are Bill Mosley and Cherry Moon Zombie respectively, they end up escaping through a tunnel in the basement and then they reach out to Captain Spaulding, who is Sid Hag, to alert him about the backup plan and they all hit the road. Something I find interesting here is, I don't know if they ever introduced this in the first film, but that Baby is actually the daughter of of Captain Spaulding, which I thought was kind of a cool thing to play with. I didn't remember that until now. Now, in their process, they're supposed to go to rendezvous at a motel, and it is here that they run into a family that is a singing group as well of Sullivan and Banjo. Now, they end up taking them hostage as Otis goes to get some guns and Baby waits for Captain Spaulding as they're trying to get to a whorehouse that is run by Charlie Alamante, who is Ken Forey. And all the while, the sheriff is after them because they killed his brother, who is George, portrayed by Tom Towles, who was the cop who died in the previous film. And he also hires a couple of ex-cons, who are Rondo of Danny Trejo and Billy Ray Snapper, Diamond Dallas Page. Now, they go by the name of the Unholy Two, and they're the best at what they are. But this comes a race of survival when the lines of good and bad become blurred. Now, this one is also paying homage, much like the House of a Thousand Corpses did. Now, in this one, they are... At the beginning, playing homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but this is really kind of more like an exploitation film as they hit the road. I'm a big fan of road horror, and I don't think there's enough of those films that are out there, so I was kind of glad to kind of see that because, like I said, we don't get enough of those, and this is one of the better ones that I've ever seen. But what we get here, though, is the evolution of characters. Rob Zombie did a good job in fleshing some of them out as well. Captain Spaulding in the first movie was such a minor character, and where this one, we get to actually kind of see him, because he does a great job at playing this dirty clown and has some great lines, especially the one that he delivers to Susan, portrayed by PJ Souls, and her son. I like that they took Otis from being this weird albino character who did a lot of, like, preaching to this badass that we get here. Mosley just embodies this role as well. I would say, unfortunately, of the three... Baby is less annoying than she was in the first movie, but Sherry Moon Zombie is the weakest actress of them all. But she still fits in well, and I love that she uses her sexuality as a weapon and that men fall for it. Because, I mean, to be honest, I probably would as well. 
And then we continue on to see how vicious that these rejects are. But what really makes this movie interesting, as I said, is blurring the lines with our protagonist, Sheriff Wydell. It is a good touch with the revenge angle of him wanting to get back for what they did to his brother. He does give a speech later on in the movie, so we kind of get this idea that his ancestors used to do vigilante justice. And I like how he kind of feels like it's you know in his blood. Now, of the lesser two evils, it's still probably the sheriff, but he's trying to kill these criminals and... The lengths that he'll go to outside of the bounds of the law makes it kind of an intriguing duality here, even though the movie kind of makes us want to feel bad for our criminals. I do have an issue, though, with how Rob Zombie writes dialogue. I liked, for the most part, that in House of a Thousand Corpses, it was better with the group that we followed, kind of talked like normal human beings. He has the Sullivans and Banjos talking pretty vulgar, and it just doesn't feel natural. I think what they should have done is made them have a little bit more innocence, because it makes it even that more harrowing when bad things happen to them. But he just seems to feel like he wants to do like a dirty and gritty film throughout, and it just doesn't necessarily work. And then there's also this cringe dialogue of talking about chicken fucking that just, I don't know why it's there, and it doesn't really add any sort of elements for me either. And I'm also glad that they didn't include Dr. Satan in this movie. I like the character that they had in the first one. It just, I don't feel like it necessarily would fit in this movie. I've already said I like the acting in this movie. I've kind of already talked about, like, kind of our four main stars. I like to see that Forey is in this movie. He's funny as this pimp character. And then having seen this in the original film, I believe that Easterbrook is a better mother firefly than what Karen Black was. But I think it's more of just how the character was written in this one opposed to that one. And then we just get some great characters like Lou Temple is in this movie, Jeffrey Lewis, Priscilla Barnes. I also like the cameos by Danny Trejo, Diamond Dallas Page, Elizabeth Daly, Tom Towles, Michael Berryman, PJ Souls, Deborah Van Velkenberg, Ginger Lynn, Mary Warvenoff, Daniel Roebuck, and Dwayne Whitaker, just to name some of the ones that I had written down. I think the effects are pretty good. I was surprised to see Robert Kurtzman's name on here. They seem to go practical here. And the only thing I could probably end up seeing was an issue for me would have been the fire near the end. But most movies, you know, kind of have this issue where this one doesn't really play up that too much. So I can overlook that. I thought the cinematography was well done here. And they elected to go more of a traditional route here, which I think I like better. And then the soundtrack is just absolutely amazing. I love the dichotomy that they use by playing some songs that are more upbeat and seem more happy. But then they're mixing this up with like images on the screen that are pretty violent. We get this at the climax of the movie. But then, of course, there's obviously the truly iconic playing of Freebird by Leonard Skinner for the ending. That is just absolutely amazing. One of the best ending sequences to a horror movie I've ever seen. And I would actually put it up against most films in general as well. So with that said, I like this one better. This is probably my favorite film from Rob Zombie. I do need to revisit... The Lords of Salem, because I've only seen that movie once. I like how they're paying homage to, you know, the exploitation films of the 70s and making this into a road horror film. The duality of the characters where the horrible criminals and the sheriff are blurring the lines of good and bad. Everything else that I kind of went through was good. The only thing I really can't stand is kind of the dialogue with how some of the characters are written. I think this is a great film, though, and I come in with a 9 out of 10 on this movie. And I also have The Exorcism of Emily Rose. This is directed by Scott Derrickson. This is co-written between Paul Harris Boardman as well as Derrickson. This stars Laura Linney, Tom Wilkinson, and Shohran Agadashlu. This is a drama horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a lawyer takes on negligent homicide case involving a priest who performed an exorcism on a young girl. 
Now, this is a film that I saw in theaters, but I don't really recall who I saw it with or if I just went by myself. But I know I saw it on the big screen and I really liked it. It is one that I come back to periodically and just enjoy in general. Part of it is the subject matter gets under my skin, and I like how they present the story. It has been a couple years since my last viewing, though, and it's thanks to the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now, just to kind of fill in a little bit more is that we have a priest by the name of Father Moore, who is portrayed by Tom Wilkinson. He is being arrested for the death of a young girl named Emily Rose, who is portrayed by Jennifer Carpenter. Now, we get to see you know, how everything builds up to the court case that's going to go down here. Now, the prosecutor is trying to find somebody who is shrewd but religious, so that's where they end up deciding on using... Ethan Thomas, who's portrayed by Campbell Scott, because he's not Catholic, but he is a Methodist, and they think they can use that he is devoutly religious as something to use on their side to, you know, pull the jury to see their point of view. And then for the defense, there's a guy of Carl Gunderson, who is Chloe Forey. He approaches Aaron Bruner, who is Laura Linney. Now, she's offered the job because she had just gotten a guy off where all the evidence pointed to him being guilty, but she got him acquitted. Now, she isn't happy to take on or be offered this case. She really doesn't want to do it, but she uses her place and leverage to become a partner if she succeeds with this case, and then that is, you know, the agreement that is made. Now, at first, the goal of Aaron is to try to poke holes in the medical kind of evidence that the prosecution is using. But then the longer things go on, she starts to be haunted by the same things that were after Emily Rose, or at least that's what she, she doesn't necessarily believe it at first, but the longer it goes on, she starts to believe it. But Father Moore definitely believes that there are forces at play here. But then they end up taking a different type of defense when it comes time for them to present their case, and that is looking at possession as a kind of a scientific way where they're trying to contend that Emily believed that she was possessed and Father Moore also did, that there could be some like psychosomatic type of disorder going on here. And then it just ends up becoming a whole crescendo here where the case at first seems like it's cut and dry for the prosecution, but when some evidence comes to light, the defense thinks they have a chance. But like I said, there are forces at play here that do not want the good to kind of prevail in this whole thing. But this film is both frightening and sad for me, and it has an interesting way of presenting the story to us. The movie sets the tone earlier with the medical examiner you're doing his job and then having Father Moore arrested. And But I also like that you know we're supposed to expect that priests are good people who are there to help. Now, seeing Ethan Thomas say that about him in the courtroom is really an interesting idea here. What works with this movie's favor, though, is that Emily passed away, and we're seeing the evidence presented chronologically through the court proceedings, but then we'll go back and see everything as it plays out. Now, if you know me, I'm not very religious, and I like to keep an open mind, and it doesn't bother me that some people do follow religion. I just don't really need it. Now, Erin is like me in that she is actually agnostic. She has a crisis of faith as things go on, though, and I really enjoy the idea that given this case because of the guy who was probably guilty and she could convince the jury to acquit there, Father Moore is a much more likable guy, and there are just things you know working in his favor, but then there are also supernatural elements that are working against it. And it's kind of interesting here, though, is that Ethan is a devoutly religious man, but the more and more that he kind of sees his case slipping away, he becomes worse and worse and meaner and meaner. And I kind of like this duality here that, you know, he's supposed to be this pious person, but he's also a, you know, prosecutor. So he can be a little bit rude if 
and kind of, you know, mean as things goes on. And I also like that this movie presents the idea of the supernatural versus the logic. We're seeing both sides here where there are legitimate things that you could medically kind of say about her being possessed. But then as we see things play out, though, we're seeing it as you know, a supernatural thing, but I like how they're giving us both sides of the coin where you can kind of make your own decisions. A lot of that here would also work well is that the acting. Lindy does a good job here in her shrewd lawyer, and then she does good at what she does, and then there are some things that are just a gray area with the law as well. And it's funny to see, you know, when Judge Brewster, who is Mary Beth Hunt, notices it and calls her out on it. Wilkinson is good as well. He's an actor that I'm not sure I've seen a bad performance from, and I'm pretty confident that seeing him in this role that he was good. You know, Scott is solid as well. The person who steals the show, though, is Jennifer Carpenter. From what I remember, she did all the body contortions herself, and that's amazing. And then she also shows this true fear as things are going on, which makes me feel bad. And then I like her take on being possessed. And then we also have some good actors here in support as well with Fiore, Joshua Close, Kenneth Welsh, J.R. Bourne, and Hurt as well. And I also kind of should put in there of the actress Aga Dashlu. And then really the last thing would be the effects. I'm glad that they didn't use a whole lot of them. I've already said that I commend Carpenter for what she did with her body as that was practical. They do some effects with her eyes that creep me out. And there's some CGI with the faces of characters that turn into demons. I like this as well as it's a hallucination. So I can kind of forgive that it doesn't look so like great. But it does make me uncomfortable. The cinematography was well done. And it's really shot in the traditional sense outside of a moment where Father Moore flees from something that is haunting him. Aside from that, they do well with the soundtrack, especially with what they do with the sound design for Emily's voice during the exorcism. Now, this is one that I really like. I know this is one that I don't necessarily feel like a lot of people talk about, but it's just an interesting way to kind of present this exorcism that we're getting here while we're, you know, dealing with the supernatural versus the logic. I would recommend this film to horror and non-horror fans alike and came in with an 8.5 out of 10. And then my last film for this week is going to be Hocus Pocus from 1993. This is directed by Kenny Ortega. And then the story comes from Mick Garris and David Kirshner. And then Mick Garris also co-wrote this with Neil Cuthbert. This is starring Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najima. This is a comedy family fantasy film from the United States that is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a curious youngster moves to Salem where he struggles to fit in before awakening a trio of diabolical witches that were executed in the 17th century. Now this is a movie that is pretty odd for my history with it because I never saw it growing up. If you follow my reviews you know that I missed some key childhood films due to watching more adult films as a child that you know I didn't necessarily fully understand. I did watch this with Jamie and one of her friends and they both love it and felt that I needed to, you know, finally tick this off my list. And it also fulfilled some criteria on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror movie challenge that I'm doing as well. Now, just to fill in a little bit, we have this trio of Winifred, who is Midler, a more comedic, heavier Mary, who is Najimy, and then we have the boy crazy one of Sarah, who is Sarah Jessica Parker. They entice a little girl named Emily, who is Amanda Shepard, to their house. And they're all currently looking old. They do a spell to steal her essence to make themselves young again. Now her brother of Thackeray, who is Sean Murray, who is her older brother, tries to stop this ritual and gets turned into a cat in the process. The townspeople learned of what happened and they execute them, but not before they perform a curse. And I almost wanted to say that I'm wondering if since I saw Mick Garris, who's a master of horror, I feel like they might have borrowed this whole concept from Black Sunday 
the Mario Bava film. I can't confirm that, but that's what it kind of feels like to me since there's, you know, a very similar pre uh, premise here. Now, this all becomes local legend, though, and everyone seems to lean into it. So when our new kid of Max, who is Omri Katz, mocks it and Halloween, he gets ridiculed. He shoots his shot, though, with a young woman that is, you know, mocking him of Allison, who is Vanessa Shaw, by trying to give her, you know, his number. She turns it down and says that she has a boyfriend, and then this poor kid gets bullied on his way home by a guy who goes by Ice, who is Larry Bagby, and his friend of Jay, who is Tobias Gilanek. So he's upset, but he ends up being forced to take his younger sister of Danny out trick-or-treating, and his little sister is played by a young Thora Birch. Now, they end up going to the house of Allison, where they learn that her mother used to run the museum that the Sanderson sisters used to own, which they are the trio of witches. Now, they convince her to take them to this place and, you know, share more information. It is there, though, that Max, once again, you know, doesn't necessarily believe everything that is happening. He lights a candle that burns with a black flame. The legend goes that if a virgin does this, which he is, then it will bring the back the Sanderson sisters, which it does. Now it becomes a race for them to do the same ritual before the night ends. Because if they're able to, they can live forever. But the problem, though, is that Max, Danny, and Allison take their spell book, and they can't remember the ritual. And they also get help from the cat version of Thackeray, who is voiced by Jason Marsden. They also have to contend with magic and a zombie named Billy Butcherson, who is the amazing Doug Jones. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap, as I probably should, you know, state here that... I've gotten a lot of grief in my past for not having seen this movie. As a horror fan, people are shocked when, you know, I haven't. And I really do have to, you know, fill in the backstory that I laid out in my opening kind of statements here. Some people get it, some people don't, though. One thing I will say is that this is back when Disney still could make a horror-ish movie with a little bit of questionable subject matter. Now, I've recently seen The Goonies for the first time, and it feels a lot like that, where if I would have saw this as a child, I would probably enjoy it more with the help of nostalgia. You know, dropping terms like virgin or what the witches are do are like trying to do here is something I don't necessarily would fly today. I could be wrong, but just the way I'm gonna, you know, feel about it, you know, I'm not necessarily sure. The concept of the movie is good though. I do believe that these witches would need to do, you know, the spell like they are. It feels a lot like borrowing a bit from the evil dead though, in that their spell book is bound in human flesh, much like you get the Necronomicon there. There is probably a bit of plot convenience that they need the book to do the spell since they can't remember. I would have been just fine if they had to, you know, have the book because it's so powerful that they need that to do the spell. It is what it is. I'm not going to pick too much at that. This is also kind of a cautionary tale here since Max being a non-believer. He mocks Halloween and doesn't fully buy into what they're spinning with the Sanderson sisters. And it's fitting that he would be the reason that they come back to stop him. I don't necessarily buy in the love that develops between him and Allison. It just feels a little bit Disney where she seems interested immediately. I can buy going through a whole night with him like she does that feelings would develop, but I mean there's still the case of she did say she had a boyfriend. Now I realize that this isn't listed as on horror on the IMDB like website. This is a horror movie in my eyes, much like the Addams Family. I mean you have witches who are eating the essence of children to become young, which isn't too dissimilar to what like Elizabeth Bathory was doing, just not as horrifying there. And we also have a zombie and a spell that will kill all the parents at a party. As for the acting, I think Midler brings some good comedy, and she really comes off well as this bitchy leader. And I also like the musical number, since she is a singer that is thrown in here. Parker is looking probably the best I've ever seen her, and I love how dumb her character is. She plays that very well. Najimi 
is a bigger one that brings her own style of comedy that I enjoyed from Sister Act 1 and 2. Katz is fine as a skeptical hero who gets bullied. By the end, you know, he's strong and we really need that character development. Birch is funny and Shaw is solid. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed with cameos by the great, as I said, Doug Jones and uncredited ones by, you know, Jerry and Penny Marshall. Now, I will say the effects are leave a little bit something to desire. I don't think the cat talking looks all that great, but I can be forgiving, especially because I've been watching a lot of 2000s films and the effects here are pretty much on par there. I think the practical makeup on Jones look good. The cinematography is fine. I had no issues there. I don't have much to say about the music, except like I said, the fun musical number with Midler that made me chuckle. Now, this is one that I'm finally glad that I checked off my list. It has an interesting concept, and I like how the story plays out, and this is much closer to like peak Disney for me. I have really no major issues with anything, and I think for the most part, everything's solid. I can't necessarily give it the nostalgia bump because this is my first time viewing it. I still think this is a good movie, and definitely one I would recommend if you're trying to get a younger person into the genre, and I come in here with an 8 out of 10. But what I'm going to go ahead and do next is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Growing up is worse than a near-death experience. I can confidently tell you that because two years ago, my babysitter and her friends tried to kill me. The worst part is nobody believes me. And now everybody thinks I'm crazy, but I miss her. You're a weird little dude with a crush on a murderous, fictitious babysitter. We just gotta get you laid. That's your advice? That's what the f just came out of my mouth, ain't it? Cole, you're my best friend. You're not crazy. It's this place. We're all going to the lake this weekend. Just come with me. I already took my dad's car. It's just you and me. We're back. You seen a gorgeous black ghost. Don't worry, guys. I'm good. Where's Sonia? Getting cookies. I watched you all die. We are dead. Duh. Clearly, you guys are into some heavy cosplay. Just leave it be. Ow! Oh, yes! oh shit! Oh no! It's all gonna get done again. Update me on the Psycho Breakfast Club. Basically, they're a blood cult, and they made a deal with the devil. And they only have three hours to complete the ritual. We could hide out till sunrise. We finish this, we have to go back down to limbo. I love you, Cole. Could this night get any more erotic? Hey, Coley. You're my kill of the night. I get killed first. That's some post-Jordan Peele era horror movie progress. my first feature review on this episode is going to be the babysitter killer queen here from 2020 this is directed by mcgee who also helped co-write this with dan lagana brad morris and jimmy warden and these are coming from the characters created by brian duffield this stars judah lewis 
Samara Weaving, Jenna Ortega, as well as Emily Allen Lind, Andrew Bachelor, Robbie Amell, Bella Thorne, Hannah Mae Lee, Ken Morano, Leslie Bibb, Chris Wilde, Carl McDonald, Maximilian Avacito, Julio Cesar Chavez, and Jennifer Foster. This is a comedy horror film from the United States that is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being two years after Cole survived a satanic blood cult, he's living another nightmare, high school, and the demons from his past are still making his life hell. Now this is a movie that I came in a bit of out of nowhere, but it got some buzz when it hit Netflix. I really enjoyed the original one, so I knew that I was going to at least check this movie out and watch it for my year-end list. It got moved up when I watched a screener that wasn't really... I needed a feature review here on this episode, so I decided that this paired up well enough with the movie that I had watched. Now, as for the director here of Mick G, he's actually known more for his action and blockbuster-type films. So far, the only two films in the genre he's directed have been this one and its original. Now, he did write a song for Scream 2. He worked on Stay Alive, the video game horror movie. He worked on Wild Things, American Pie, both of those, all those as producers. He did direct the Charlie's Angels movies that came out, I believe, earlier in the 2000s. And then he also directed Terminator Salvation, just to name some of his credits. Dan Lagana only has six writing credits, with this one being the only one in horror so far. Brad Morris has even less, and this being the only feature that he's written for. Same thing goes for Jimmy Warden. Also, this is McGee's only writing credit for a feature as well. Now, the characters are coming from Brian Duffield, as I said, who also wrote the screenplay and came up with the story for the movie Underwater from this year. I did really enjoy that movie, so it's kind of cool to see that he's done, you know, a few things that I've enjoyed. Now, some of our stars, according to IMDb, are doing well for themselves in the genre. Judah Lewis has 10 acting credits, and four of them are in the genre with this movie, the original... Summer of 84 and I See You. Now, I've seen three of these with really enjoying Summer of 84 and the original Babysitter. Now, we shall see here as I go through everything. And then we have Samara Weaving, appeared first in Ash vs. Evil Dead. She was then in the movie Mayhem, which I haven't gotten around to see yet. She's in The Babysitter, Ready or Not, and then her cameo here. She is also was in the movie Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri in a small role. And then she's also in Guns Akimbo, which, which I really did end up liking. Jenna Ortega. Now, she appeared in Insidious Chapter 2 as Annie. And then she did a couple of children's shows in the genre with Over the Garden Wall and Dead Time Stories, while also appearing in Iron Man 3. And then the final one I had to pull in was Emily Ellen Lind. Despite her age, she has 39 acting credits already. Now, she started in Haunting in Connecticut to Ghosts of Georgia, which is a horrible title, and the movie wasn't all that good either. Then she followed up with Mockingbird, Hidden, Lights Out, and The Babysitter in consecutive years. Now, I've only seen that first one she was in as well as The Babysitter, but then she was also in Doctor Sleep, where I will kind of delve into a little bit of that movie here with some of the things I think about her. And then she was also in a horror TV series of Sacred Lives before being in this sequel as well. Now, I pick up the story two years after the events of the original movie. Now, I've only seen that first one just one time, and it was the year that it came out. I do vaguely remember that Cole's parents were still having him babysat, even though he was a bit old. Now, I did read somewhere that the timeline is a little bit off, but, I mean, I'm not going to hold that against the movie. What is interesting here is that we have the same actor back to take on that role as well. 
The movie does an interesting move here with Cole as he's struggling with high school because everyone around him knows the story of what happened. The problem is that no one believes him, including his own parents, which seems to make it even worse. Melanie, who was portrayed by Lind, is the same actress from the first movie. You know, she is back and they're best friends. She is sticking with him, having experienced things from that fateful night. Cole is still in love with her, but she is seeing this other guy, Jimmy, who is paid by Maximilian Avaciado. Now, he is a douchebag, and it's kind of a shame that she is seeing him. Things all take a turn when Cole discovers that his parents are going to send him to a high school where he can get more psychiatric help. His parents, again, are Archie, who is Ken Marino, and then Phyllis, who is Leslie Bibb. He ends up finding a flyer for the place, and when he tells Melanie, she recommends ditching school with her and going to the lake. This is established that she is going with Jimmy, Diego, who is Julio Cesar Chavez, and Boom Boom, who is Jennifer Foster. Now, he's debating what to do as, because he always seems to want to follow the rules or just live his life. Should also be pointed out here that there's a new girl in their school of Phoebe, who is portrayed by Ortega. Cole is intrigued by her quirky and sarcastic nature. She's a bit rough around the edges, but we see that she is harboring a dark secret. She opens her locker to find a stuffed rabbit and a note as well as a key. And the note is saying that it'll end tonight. She also ditches school to go to the lake as well. And we figure this out because the key that she has is to the cabin that her parents used to own. Now, Melanie pushes Cole out of his comfort zone, but when him and his friends are out in the middle of the lake, his past demons are back. Now, they're in the form, of course, of John, who is Andrew Bachelor, Max, who is Robbie Amell, Allison, who is Bella Thorne, and Sonia, who is Hannah Mae Lee. This is B's old crew, and they're back to finish what was started so they can escape hell. And they kind of have some cool mythology here that every two years they can try to attempt this as long as, you know, the ritual is still going. And, you know, it was interrupted originally in the first one, so that is, you know, kind of something that they're allowed to do. The problem, though, is that there are new members to this cult, and they're people Cole would never expect. Now, I want to leave it there like that, because I don't necessarily want to go into spoilers for this review, because I think this is one that I don't think you're going to be blown away necessarily by what the reveals are, but I think it's kind of some cool things to play with, and it's more fun if you kind of experience them. I'll be honest, when I first heard that they were going to do a sequel, I was a bit skeptical. As I've said, I did really dig what they were doing in that original movie, just not as much as some, but definitely more than others. Sequels are interesting as you want to do something new, but keep that same feeling of the first one, and I think they do a good job here. One thing that really struck me early in this movie is that how Cole is struggling mentally. No one around him believes what he thinks happened to him. He is bullied by school like in school by the cool kids and it cuts pretty deep that even his parents don't believe him and that they're questioning and want him to kind of i don't mind them wanting him to seek therapy but you can just get the feeling that they are kind of humoring him at times melanie of course does believe him as she lived through some of it and she wants him to just kind of move past and enjoy life it is hard to blame her but i think that works well in breaking him down and explains you know why he's lacking in confidence because that's one of the big things with his character here which is kind of interesting, though, because at the end of the first movie, of course, he builds up that kind of confidence in himself to do what he does in that movie, and then he's lost it because of everything going on in his life since that moment. Now, some things that hit me while watching this is how much it reminded me of kind of like The Hangover and Hangover 2. I happen to enjoy both of those, and that is what we're getting here as well. The Babysitter had an interesting concept, and this movie is following in the same vein here, but they're just building onto it, which is what you should do in a sequel. They brought back all of the members of the cult from the first movie with John, Max, Allison, and Sonia. Now, we are adding a younger group that is trying to fulfill the same thing to get, you know, their how they want to be living life, and they don't necessarily want to 
work for it. And we get a very interesting thing early on where it's uh, talking about the story of Faust. And an interesting thing is brought up there is working to get something gives you the fulfillment of the journey where if you just cut to a shortcut to get to there, it's not as fulfilling. And it's kind of funny because these that's what these cult members are trying to do. They're not really wanting to put in the hard work to do anything. They just want to get that quick shortcut to get their wildest dreams. It does add some comedy for this as well because the jokes are flown around that this older cult members are old when they're really just a couple years age gap. It's a little bit outrageous, but I think it works. And it also fills in the backstory for them as to why B, who is Samara Weaving, came to them and got them to join the cult with her. Much like in the original, there are some pretty quirky images and animations that go with it. I'm not always the biggest fan of these, though, I will be honest. And that's something that I said when I watched the original movie. Now, to stay with the theme of the sequel, we also need to deepen the story. One way to do that is add more characters. Phoebe is a cute girl, and I've already laid out how... Phoebe's a cute girl, and I've already laid out how her character is. I'm glad she's here as her and Cole play well off each other. There's a bit of awkwardness there that fits the tone of the movie. Another thing you have to do is to build on the characters that you still have. Cole's strength needs to build, as in the first one, it is broken, and by the bullying and lack of beliefs of, you know, everything that happened to him. So we get the character, and we get the chance for him to recapture that. Melanie is such a minor character, but I love what they do with her. This is another mirror that I don't want to reveal, but Lind is an actress that I'm going to be keeping my eyes on because think of something we got in the first movie and then we have a mirror here with somebody new with, you know, this Melanie character who was in the original still. She stuck with the horror genre so far is what I really like about Lind, and I love that she was in Doctor Sleep prior to returning to the sequel. All I will say is that she brings a bit of snake by Andy to this role, which is who she played in Doctor Sleep. And she's also grown up quite a bit, if you catch my drift. Now, since I'm going over the characters, we need to really talk about the acting. Lewis embodies this character. I can feel that he's the same kid as the first movie, just grown up a bit. And I think that works. Ortega plays her role very well, and I liked her, what they do with her here. I've already said how well Lind did. Bachelor, Amel, Thorne, Lee, and the rest of the cultists are fine. They all bring up their own different types of humor that had me laughing at different times. And I also like they're distinct enough where you can kind of tell them apart as well. Marino, Bib, and Chris Wilde are all good as the parents. The latter is just outrageous, taking on the name of Juan. We also get a bit of weaving, which I don't want to spoil what they do with her character. But she's not really in this movie much, and I'm glad for that. Most of it is cameos showing her how she got the others to join with her for what they did in the first movie. And then there's something else in it. But I'm glad they don't feature her a whole lot and that, I mean, I'm wondering if some of it was contractual that she didn't necessarily want to come back as a major role, but I think it works better with what they do. Now, since I've moved into some of the comedic aspects as well, I should couple this up with the effects and cinematography. Horror comedies can be hit or miss for me. Since I liked the first one, I was wondering how well they would, you know, do and work with this one. There are some things that legit made me laugh. They do try to use the effects for comedic value as well at times. I don't necessarily like that, and the CGI blood and gore isn't great. Like, I could tell it was fake, and it's a bit over the top. Now, the practical effects I was on board with, and aside from a couple times that, again, they went a bit over the top with it, I mean, it does feel like it works. And then there are a little bit of green screen, I believe, but that is fine. Aside from that, the cinematography was also fine with how it was shot. Now, the last thing I want to go over would be the soundtrack. The normal music fit for what was needed, and what we really... Hit me was the use of songs like I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner, 8675309, Jenny by Tommy Two-Tone, and of course Killer Queen by Queen. 
Now, the last one was a little bit cheap, but I'll take it. The music, though, was used well, in my opinion, along with incorporating them back into the story. So this movie is still fairly new. There's not a whole lot of trivia out about it yet, but there was a scene fairly early on where Cole notices that Phoebe has a tattoo of a black cat on her left wrist. This is something that, if you know, in the first movie, plays back into this one. And then there's also a Wilhelm scream at the end of an interpretive dance sequence where they're actually using it as playing with... It's kind of a montage where they're using it to be an allegory for something else that is being done. But I don't necessarily want to spoil what that is because it was actually one of the scenes that really did make me crack up, especially with the song that they have playing over top of it. So now with that said... I wasn't sure if I was going to, you know, like this sequel, but I ended up really enjoying it. We get more of the same that you got in the original, but the things added on really work for me, and the mirroring of things in the first with this one was good as well. The acting really does help move this movie, and I think that the comedy with them is good as well. It does go a bit over the top, though, with some of the gore, but the practical effects worked as well. The soundtrack really does, you know, help with the enjoyment for me. I never got bored with this movie, and I think it's one of those things where there's just so much fun going on that I can just kind of enjoy what I'm seeing. Now, I would rate this as an above-average film, just borderline on being a good, where I came in with a 7.5 out of 10. Now, what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. Your attention, please. To those who are squeamish or react nervously to shock, we suggest that when you hear this sound, close your eyes and do not look at the screen again until it stops. But if you can stand shocks, you must see Telltale Heart, starring Lawrence Payne, Adrian Corrie, and Dermot Walsh, a superbly acted, strange, compelling story from the book by Edgar Allan Poe. Telltale Heart lays bare the tormented mind of a lonely neurotic whose frustrated love for a beautiful woman leads only to torment and murder. Mr. Marsh! You know, don't you? You know! You can hear it, Cutsworth. You can hear it. Yeah, what? The beating of his heart. The beating of his infernal heart. I can't stop his heart from beating. I can't stop his heart from beating. Killing was no way to silence his victim's heart. Every rhythmic sound, the ticking of a clock, the dripping of a tap, was transformed into the relentless beating of the telltale heart. You'll be gripped and shocked by the dramatic tension and macabre realism of Telltale Heart. This is a must. Don't miss Telltale Heart. And for my second featured review here, I have The Telltale Heart from 1960. And I do really need to make it stress there because I was looking up the connections for this and there are a ton of variations on this. It does make a lot of sense though. So Edgar Allan Poe is one of those authors that his works do adapt very well. But to get into this one, this was directed by Ernest Morris. The screenplay was co-written between Brian Clemens and Eldon Howard. And then of course it came from the story by Edgar Allan Poe. Which I did also find funny in the opening title screen for this movie. They misspell his name. 
uh, his middle name that is, a with an E instead of an A. This movie stars Lawrence Payne, Adrian Corey, and Dermot Walsh. And then it also has in it Selma Vazdias, John Scott, John Martin, Annette Car- Carroll, David Lander, Rosemary Rothery, Suzanne Fuller, Yvonne Buckingham, David Courtney, Richard Bennett, Joan Pert, and Elizabeth Paget. This is a horror film from the United Kingdom that is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. Now, there isn't a good synopsis on the IMDb or on Letterboxd, so I had written up my own, which... Edgar, who is Lawrence Payne, is plagued by what he's done with strange sounds are coming from under the floor. Now, this was a version of the story from Edgar Allan Poe that I wasn't aware existed. I'm not surprised since, as I said earlier, this is a popular story that doesn't take a whole lot to actually bring it to the screen. It would be one, though, that wouldn't be the easiest thing to do before sound and music being actually synced with the images on screen. But we're past that in terms of cinema by at least 20 years. Now, I did recognize the name of Adrian Corey from a few different things, and I'll delve into that here in a minute. But the director, Ernest Morris, directed 31 films in his career, with this being the only one in the horror genre. He did serve as second unit director or assistant director on a movie called Alias John Preston from 1955. And this movie, oddly enough, when I looked into it, had Christopher Lee. And then one of the co-writers of Clemens, he has... 108 writing credits to his name this was his first in the horror genre and then from here he also wrote in soon the darkness which is a movie that i really enjoy he also did voodoo blood death as tony o'grady as a pseudonym he wrote that under he did dr jekyll and sister hyde which i do enjoy captain chronos vampire hunter which is a lot of fun and he also directed that movie he also penned the screenplay for the watcher in the woods which is one that i haven't seen as of yet but it's one that pops up quite often He's also credited for the update to the movie and Soon the Darkness from 2010 as he did the original screenplay, of course. Now, the other writer is interesting of Eldon Howard is I brought his name up before as I've only seen his only other horror writing credit. And it was also from this year with Horrors of Spider Island, which was a featured review on this podcast not too long ago. Then, of course, there's, like I said, Edgar Allan Poe, who's had his works adapted hundreds and hundreds of times over. I did see another take on this story from 2009 called Telltale, which I don't remember being that good, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. Then we have our star of Lawrence Payne. He appeared in 81 works. His first in the horror genre was The Crawling Eye from 1958, and he was also in Vampire Circus from 1972. From there, his last three were TV series of Thriller, Tales of the Unexpected, and Shakespeare, The Animated Tales. Then, name I brought up previously, Adrian Corey, was in 110 acting credits. The first in the horror genre was Devil Girl from Mars in 54. There was also the Antonomist, or I think it's the Atomist, I'm not really sure, Corridors of Blood, Journey into Darkness, Vampire Circus, which she was also in that with Pain. Then I've also seen her in the movie Madhouse with Vincent Price, as well as one of my favorite movies of all time in A Clockwork Orange. And then she was also in a thriller that I've done a review on quite a long time ago that I've seen once of Bunny Lake is Missing. That's one that I would also recommend seeing from that last time I viewed it, but I guess I will say that it has been a long time since seeing that, though. And then there is finally Dermot Walsh, as he was in 69 works as an actor. Nice. His first horror was Ghost Ship from 1952. I've never seen this one, but I believe this is where the remake got its idea. He was also in a movie that I've heard brought up quite a few times that I do want to check out in The Flesh and the Fiends. This is also in the same year as The Telltale Heart. 
And then from there, he was in an episode of Journey to the Unknown. And then he was also in its TV movie from 1969, Nice. Now, we start this movie off with a warning that this movie displays some scary images. And when you hear heavy thumping, that sounds similar to a heart. If it is too much, then to look away. It will then show us who will end up learning to be Edgar as he's coming out of his room. He's at the top of the stairs, and there's something he's hearing that is driving him mad. He goes down into the lounge where he thinks it's a metronome that is on the piano that is causing the sound. When smashing it doesn't help, he realizes that it's coming from under the piano and tries to get to the source. The movie then shifts us into the past of what will lead us to this moment. Edgar is a wealthy man who is best friends with Carl, who is Walsh. Edgar is a guy who isn't very confident in himself. We get a scene at a bar where a woman comes on to Edgar and he flees, where we get the feeling that Carl would know what to do. Now, Edgar sees a young woman of Betty, who's portrayed by Corey, move in next door. He goes about learning everything that he can about her. This is mostly from the landlady, who is portrayed by Annette Carroll. He learns that she works at this local flower shop, so Edgar does make a bit of a fool out of himself when asking about getting, like, I almost feel like it's like a boutonniere over top of his, like, pocket, but when she goes to get something, he just disappears, and then Edgar seeks out his aid from his friend of what to do, which is why I brought up that Carl is, you know, more confident with the ladies. Now, he does take the advice from his friend, and it works. Their first dinner date is a bit awkward, but it doesn't seem to go that bad. Now, he does walk her to her door, and when they get there, he tries to get fresh with her, trying to kiss her. She rebuffs his efforts, though, and then Edgar is persistent, though, and, you know, sees her at work the next day. He hasn't completely ruined it from everything that I gathered, and I think a lot of this is that Betty is new to the area, so she doesn't really know anybody, and she does have this guy who is wealthy enough to offer to take her out. He does ask her out for a drink, which she does agree in seeing him again. Now, while the two of them are out dancing... You can really get the feeling that Betty isn't as enjoying this as much as he is. Things take a turn when Carl shows up at the club. Edgar invites his friend to join them for a drink. Now, he does try to decline because he is with a group of people, but the two are persistent for different reasons. Edgar really loves his friend, where Betty is enamored with him. He stays for longer and ends up dancing with Betty. But what I do like about here, though, is Carl does seem to be trying to ignore Betty and I think a lot of this is that he doesn't want to upset his friend who has shown interest and, I mean, brought this young woman out, even though he can tell that she is, you know, vibing him. Edgar and Betty see each other regularly, but she is really hoping to see more of Carl. One of these times is when she learns that the two men meet up to play chess on Sundays. She takes his chance to come over, and this turns into Carl being invited to dinner the next night with this couple. Now, on top of that, though, is they're both quite persistent in inviting him, and it, this is where Carl, you know, gives into her advances. The problem also becomes is that Edgar's window looks directly into Betty's apartment, which we've seen this previously, because there's a moment where he is watching her as she undresses, and this time, though, he gets an eyeful of much, much more. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap of this movie, as this does have an interesting take on the post story, and with the changes that are made, it does allow it to adapt pretty well to the screen, in my opinion. There are just some interesting aspects that are introduced on top of that as well. This is really a three-person story with some minor players that are there in support. I want to start with the character of Edgar. He isn't confident in himself, and Carl has an interesting take on him. Carl at one point says that Edgar is a man who is to be pitied and that he invites that on him. He is enamored with Betty, who is quite beautiful, but he really doesn't have any confidence. It is a shame, though, because he's wealthy enough and he's not bad-looking. He is shy around women, which is what we get when we see Elise, who is pregnant. 
there is just some creepiness to him as well. Betty's curtains are op open, so Edgar sees her as she undresses. And also something else that becomes the crux of everything that has happened here. Carl also has another thing he says that Edgar really doesn't want, doesn't really love her, but he thinks he does. He would be just as happy to possess her than actually share the feelings that she feel that he feels for her so it's really more of i don't necessarily know if he loves her or if he just kind of is going through the motions and just like somebody that he can spend time with and share everything with but it does feel like as somebody who has a little bit of wealth that he really just wants to possess her there are then the characters of betty and carl i can't fully blame betty for using edgar he isn't picking up that she isn't fully reciprocating the feelings that he is feeling towards her he is really pushing for her to go out with him, so I can't fault her for taking advantage of it. Because there are times where she doesn't seem interested, but she still does it. And, I mean, if you don't have any plans and this guy's offering to do things, I don't have any fault in what going out there. I do think the problem, though, is that this is also Victorian, like England, so it's not necessarily where women have as much rights and everything like that. So there's just kind of that weird situation there with the time that this movie takes place in. It is not great of her, though, to go after his friend, but the heart wants what the heart wants. I will give credit to Carl, though. He ignores her and her advances for a good stretch. Is She is really the aggressor, and it is Edgar's fault in part for the two of them spending time together early on because he keeps inviting his friend there and not picking up on the fact that Betty wants him there as well and that's you know how everything ends up. He feels for her what she is feeling for him, so I can't really fault them in the end. Before shifting over to another aspect of the story, I want to delve into the acting. Since I've gone through the characters themselves, Payne I really think is the best part of this movie. He does a great job at playing this character. I felt from the beginning of the movie that he was a bit unstable, having that cold open that is the scene that you know is later in the movie. And that really helps everything there as well. When he snaps, I believe he's capable of the things that he has done. Corey is good as well. She does a lot with her body language, and I can appreciate that. Walsh gives off confidence, which he really needs to, and it fits for his character. The rest of the cast really just helps to run this out and develop in the scenes that they're in. To move this back to the story elements, we do get some things with sight and vision. Edgar's a peeping Tom, as he's looking in the window of Betty's apartment. It is interesting this came out in 1960, as we get to see her in lingerie. The movie is set in the Victorian times, or it feels like it at least, which is an interesting to potentially cut down on nudity. We also get a scene where Betty is constantly staring at Carl right in front of Edgar. He doesn't seem to notice, and I love that they're dancing, sitting at the table, and pretty much everything in that scene, no matter what they're doing, she is staring at him. Carl's returning this look, and we get an cl extreme close-up of his eyes as he gazes back at her. I thought this was an interesting as an early thing where the male gaze, you know, as that becomes a trope and something you get a lot of in the horror genre as it develops i'll take this next to the effects of the movie this is in black and white which i've come to appreciate we don't get a lot of effects and it is fairly early in the genre we aren't getting a lot in the way of blood or anything like that in general there is a pretty violent scene though where we get to see that the aggressor ends up being covered in blood as you know he kills the victim that looked good, and with the lack of color, I can't really hold anything against the movie if it looks real or not, because the blood just has a dark kind of hue to it, much akin to something like you'd see in, like, The Night of the Living Dead. What we get to see, though, does work for me. The cinematography is also fine, in my opinion. I really like the use of seeing our characters looking at things and focusing in on that. The last thing I want to go over before ending this review would be the soundtrack. The music that is used worked for me. We are hearing music that is diegetic as it fits for the era. I've never put together that Poe was writing in Victorian times, just in the United States. 
This movie has shifted the story to be over in England, so I'm good with that. What I really like, though, is the drumming sound that is mimicking what a beating heart would be. It starts with a clock in Edgar's room. When he stops that, it is dripping water before becoming something else. This really sets the tone and fitting for the warning in the beginning of the movie. They are all interesting to me because they're all annoying sounds that are getting to Edgar, which is a representation of his conscience, of course, and I can get behind all of this. Now, I really couldn't find any trivia online, so I'm just going to go ahead and close this review out and saying that I really did enjoy this adaptation of a short story. It is one that affords you to add your own flair to it, and what we do get here, you know, does that. We explore some interesting ideas here with Edgar seeming to be an unstable guy and his character is played well by pain. It is hard to fault his two counterparts for what is happening and they're portrayed in a solid way. The other actors do well in support. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but it is early enough in cinema so I can't complain. The soundtrack, sound design, and cinematography really did add some good elements as well. With that out of the way, I would rate this as an above average movie overall. An interesting film for sure, but it's just lacking a bit for me to go higher at this time. So I came in with a 7.5 out of 10. Now that is all I have for you know this review here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I would like to welcome you back one last time. And then just to close this episode out, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you have any questions or anything that you'd like answered or anything you'd like read on the show, if you definitely send that to me, I can do that. And if you send me something that you don't want me to, you can also just kind of signify there. Either way, just thought I'd let you know that. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode, you can do so at horrorreview.webnode.com. And that'll be any reviews here or any of the past reviews as well. If you'd like to add me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish, Letterboxd. I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. If you'd like to add the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile. And then if you'd also like to join in on the chat over on the Flick Chat app, that's going to be something you can download on Android or iOS. And then my join code is Journey with a Cinephile over there. And I'll have all of this stuff in the show notes as well. And if I could ask you that whatever you are listening to this on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe as well as rate and review just so I can get an idea of what I'm doing that you do like and what I'm doing that you don't like just so I can make this the best show possible as well. As for the next episode, I've already watched one of the films that's going to be a featured review and that is going to be Possessor or I have been seeing it on IMDb as Possessor Uncut. This is the new Brandon Cronenberg film that is starring Andrea Riseborough. And then I think I'm going to pair that up with... I found a copy of The Flesh and the Fiends, which is a film from 1960 that is starring Peter Cushing. So those are going to be the two or the two featured reviews on that episode. And I'm going to end up watching a ton of movies as you know it is October. So I'm trying to see if I can get up to 62 as well as you know doing these movie challenges and everything like that. I don't really have anything else that I kind of want to delve into. I kind of got you up to speed on everything there so what i'll go ahead and do is say that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time this is your tour guide david garrett jr signing off